Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 20. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 and read down through verse 17 this morning. It's on page 61. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in front of you. Thank you guys again for singing for us. And uh, of course, I, I'm just troubled. Every time we sing There is a Fountain, Brian gets stuck with that last verse, this poor, lisping, stammering tongue. And I just think we need to advocate for him that somebody else needs to t- take that every now and again. So he's always stuck with it. So uh, this is God's word for us this morning. And uh, this is what God says, beginning at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any uh, likeness of anything that is in heaven above or Uh, that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will uh, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. Father, thank you. For your word. There is no word like your word. And we count it as precious. Now our prayer is that as we look at your word this morning. That you would be near to us. By your spirit. In fact that you would be at work in our midst. In our hearts. So that these words that we are considering. Would reshape us and shape us and change us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are now at this point in the book of Exodus in which we are now considering um, what we call the Ten Commandments. And um, 
What I hope to do this morning is to give us an overview of what we've just read, and then, Lord willing, we'll take uh, one at a time, then over the next subsequent 10 weeks, and consider these commands uh, in a a, a closer consideration and a closer arrangement. For this morning, as we kind of like scan the the overall big picture of uh, this section, I first of all want to consider some facts supporting um, these words, and then I want us to consider something of the function surrounding these words. Uh, I got a lot that I I, that I intend to cover. I don't know if if I'll if I've successfully sliced this up right. And so let's but let's just dive in and see um, what uh, what we can do. First of all, just some particular details about this Ten Commandments, about these Ten Commandments. And, 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 and after we consider the facts of some particular details, I want to just consider some facts of just general observations of, of all ten. The first thing I just want to make note of is um, uh, ten what? Um, we know these as Ten Commandments. And uh, that's not a wrong answer. I mean, there's ten of them, and they're commandments. And, and, and so for, for us to call them ten commandments is, okay, no, uh, no, no biggie. But, but probably more precisely, um, well, and God, in verse 1, and God spoke all of these words, uh, all of these words, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, as well as in Exodus chapter 34, uh, they're specifically called ten, well, depending on what translation you have, but ten words. And so on the one hand, they, these ten words certainly are imperatives, they certainly are commands, and so there's no, uh, no fight by calling them the ten commandments. Uh, uh, but... but, but Maybe a better way, or at least at least one way to consider this, is to consider that these are ten words. And reason I would point that out is I do think there's some significant parallel between these ten words that will now, in a sense, forge uh, the shape of Israel's life as a nation, and uh, Genesis chapter one where, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, we have, well, you may not know this, but we have 10 words. 10 times God said, let there be, let there be, let there be. And I would suggest that, that the parallel to that is just as those 10 words in Genesis 1 brought about the existence of all things, so now these 10 words will bring about the life and the goodness and the vitality of the nation Israel. Just like the very words of God is what accounts for the creation of all things, it is now the very words of God that will account for the life and existence. So so that, Moses will say in Deuteronomy, uh, that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of, of God. These ten words are meant to give us life. Second thing I want to just observe in terms of a particular detail is each of these commands, each of these verbal commands 
are stated in the second person singular masculine. So it's almost like, hey guys, do not murder. Hey guys, do not bear false witness. Hey guys, no. so now what do we, how do we take that? Does that mean like uh, all the ladies can do whatever they want and, and us, it's only us guys that have to like uh, obey the commands of, of God? Well, you might remember something that I alluded to last week uh, in Exodus chapter 19 that, that Israel was God's treasured possession. And as the Old Testament unpacks that and unfolds that, to, to be a treasured possession is to be a son of God. Or in Exodus chapter 4, when, when Moses first goes to Pharaoh, he says, uh, he says I'm passing on a message from God. You, um, you, have let, you, have, you have been messing with God's firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn son, and I think that's bore out just in the very verbal significance of how what's in play here is, is you have a father who is talking to his son. These are the words, these are, these are the father's words to his son. And what this father is doing is he is disclosing to his son what he likes and dislikes. What, what, what these words are doing is they are, they are declaring to the son something of the father's own character and values. So that, you remember also from last week, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests and a, a holy nation. They, in other words, they were to repu- represent their father to all the other nations. They were to be solely dedicated to their father before all of the other nations. And so, and so as, as, the, as now Israel is hearing their father describe what life is to look like and consist of, um, they are to live in such a way of obedience and covenant faithfulness that they are to reflect their father's character in how they live. They are to recommend their father's good ways to all of the other nations before them. So that, so that, as we've seen all throughout the book of Exodus, this is just another facet of how the Lord is making his name known among all the earth. He is now going to be doing that through his son, uh, through, through the people of Israel, uh, living in faithfulness and obedience to these Ten words. Now that's it's important for lots of reasons, but one of which I'll just say is that is that the Ten Commandments are not a ladder that one climbs to earn the status of son. No, the Ten Commandments are 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 fatherly instructions given to his redeemed sons. That they are the your and my and Israel's obedience to these ten words are not the way that one earns salvation, uh, not the way that we earn belonging to God as our Father. No, no, God has redeemed His Son. God has redeemed His people in Christ Jesus. And now these instructions are given to display and evidence our sonship. Another detail. So there's 10 words, there's second person singular mas- masculine verbs, 
Third uh, particular detail is, um, well, there's 10 of them, uh, but um, uh, how do we, well, how do we slice up the 10? Uh, apparently, Christians through the ages have had a hard time counting. And, and what I mean by that is all, all agree that there's 10, uh, but there's not been universal disagreement. There's not been universal agreement in the history of the church as to um, which are the 10. So, for instance, um, Roman Catholics and Lutherans um, believe that the, the first two, what, we, what I would call the first two commands, um, are, um, um, uh, are combined. So, for instance, um, verse 3 and then verses 4 through 6 are really just the one first command. No gods, no other gods, and no graven image. They, they would say that's just one and the same command. And then what they do to get 10, because you just took one off the table there, is they go over to verse 17 and we're, and, and we're do not covet as mentioned twice. They would say that's two separate commands. So, verse 17, you should not covet your neighbor's house. Um, that's the first, that's number nine, if you would. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything of your neighbor's. That's number 10. So, now, so then the remaining Protestants, as well as Orthodox Christians, um, they, they take it that verse 3 is the first command, verses 4 through 6 is the second command, and then verse 17 is just simply one command. Not a, not a big dramatic fuss. I just want to point that, point that out to you in terms of weighing in on some particular details of the passage. Also, then, um, uh, there's a lot of um, back and forth of discussion. Is how are these ten words, these ten, ten commandments, uh, divided up? How do we categorize them? Uh, and, and what adds to that is we, we learn from like Exodus 32 uh, that Moses brought down two tablets. Well, how do we make that? Is it, are all ten commandments on each of those? In other words, were there duplicates made? Uh, or were half of them on uh, one tablet and, and the other half on the other tablet? And, and if so, then um, I, I'm more inclined to maybe think that's the way it is. Well, well what's the halves? Um, uh, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 22, someone approached Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, uh, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and um, on these two commands, all of the law and prophets uh, are combined, are, 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 are uh, you know, referred to. So, so on the one hand, we do have these two categories, perhaps, loving God and loving neighbor. Is that, that seems to play in on how we would slice up the, the Ten Commandments. And, and, and yet then some people say, well, then there's the, that first table has four commands, uh, and then the second table has ten commands, I mean six commands, and because and, uh, four of them are directed toward God and six of them are directed toward uh, uh, man, so more of a horizontal thing. But, but I don't, I'm not sure that that would maybe be the best way to understand it. I, I think however we slice it up, what is interesting is that there is a five plus five dynamic going on here. And I mean that in two ways. Uh, the first five commandments all have explanations connected to them. 
Also, the first five commandments all specifically invoke the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And in fact, um, the first five commandments comprise 145 words. It's a, it's a bit more wordy, the first five are. The second five are not very wordy at all. All, all of the second five combined only consist of 26 words. For instance, in command six, command seven, command eight are just two words apiece. The word no, and then, and then what it's referring to. No murder, no adultery, no stealing. So very, just not a lot of detail, just direct and, 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 and to the point. The other thing I want to add to this, just kind of general, uh, just kind of particular um, specking out of the details, is um, the, the fourth and the tenth commands, as they are listed here in Exodus uh, chapter 20, um, are... are are somewhat different, not hugely different, but somewhat different uh, than we find as they're listed in Deuteronomy. For instance, in uh, the, the fourth command concerning the Sabbath, the explanation for the Sabbath in Exodus is concerning creation. The explanation for the Sabbath in Deuteronomy is their redemption from Egyptian captivity. Interesting. We'll think about that when we get there. But, but then also, this, the 10th commandment about coveting, uh, the order is, is, is flipped in, in a sense. And here in, in Exodus, um, it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's the first thing that's mentioned. And, um, and covet your neighbor's house, rather. That's the first thing that's mentioned. And then added to that, it says, you should not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, those two are flipped when we read the 10 commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. Oh, anyway, we'll... Maybe consider the significance of that. And, and then maybe just a couple of more facts. Um, for, uh, just general observations. As you look at the 10, um, maybe the first thing or one thing that ought to strike you or does strike you is that, um, well, they're, they're negative. Eight of the 10 commands are stated negatively. Only two are stated positively. Remember the Sabbath and honor your father and your mother. Um, it, 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 that, that may strike us as odd, and so I just want to kind of lean into that a bit more and uh, have us maybe consider something. And related to that, really, even this whole segment now about all of these laws and commands and judgments and statutes, uh, how are we to think about what's going on here in light of the Father's loving generosity. I mean, the first half of Exodus, chapters 1 through 18, man, we were, we, were, we were cooking. I mean, it's such a clear demonstration of the Lord's love, the Lord's generosity in rescuing Israel from Egyptian captivity. That the, the Lord is displaying not only His might, but His mercy and His kindness and now we're at the second half of the book of Exodus. And um, has, the, has the generosity of God dried up? I mean, by the, by the time he reaches Mount Sinai with the people of Israel, has he extinguished all of his generosity? Um, 
In other words, is, do we see God's generosity not only in his delivering, rescuing hand, but can we consider, are we open to expand our concepts and realize that the law-giving hand of God also displays the generosity of God? In other words, we've not moved from a generous God to a grumpy God. The Father's generosity here in Exodus has not dried up. In fact, I would suggest to you that um, he now takes his dear son, Israel, and he now deepens Israel even further into the heart of his generosity by disclosing and by revealing his loving heart uh, to his children. Now, just by way of a, just a brief application from that, uh, in other words, so here is a generous, loving father imparting instructions and commands and imperatives to his son. That's what a good dad does. It is, it is not a good dad who refuses to impart moral instruction into the lives of his children. Furthermore, even more specifically, going back to the notion of, these are so negative. Um, it is a good dad who knows how and when to say no to his children. Oh, not, not the no of a disinterested, selfish, angry father, but the no of an involved self-denying, committed father. These are negative. No to this, no to this, no to this, and no to that. And we have to see that's from the heart of a loving, generous, merciful father. Now, I'm painting with broad strokes. Let me, let me, let me kind of clarify myself here. Um, uh, I think children ask all sorts of questions. And there's some questions that children natively ask that, boy, we better be right on the ball and say yes about. When our children ask, do you love me? We have to say yes. Uh, do you uh, want to be with me? We have to say yes. Uh, um, are we going to do things together? We have to say yes. Are we going to get on the ground and play and wrestle? We have to say yes. Yes, 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 yes. But it's also a generous father, as exemplified by our Father in heaven, who knows a thing or two about no. So when our children and grandchildren ask, can I do whatever I want? Our loving, generous answer is no. Can I have whatever I want? Our loving, generous answer must be no. Am I the center of the universe? Our loving, generous answer must be no. Can I decide for myself what is right and wrong? Our generous, loving answer is no, no, no. For oftentimes it is, in fact, in the negatives. 
and these, that God is, is placing limits around his people because of his love for them, because of his calling and mission for them. These negatives place limits, but in so doing, that opens up with great clarity what they are to be about. That opens up with great clarity what are the positives in, that are in play, even in these negative statements. So when he says, no other gods, positively he's saying, worship the Lord alone. When he says, no images, he's saying, worship the Lord in the way the Lord prescribes to be worshipped. When he says, do not take the name of the Lord in vain, he says, honor the Lord in our speech and in our conduct. When he says, um, uh, no murder, he's really saying, respect and protect life. When he says, no adultery, he's really saying, respect and protect marriage. When he says, no stealing, he's really saying, uh, protect and respect property. When he's saying, no bearing false witness. He's saying really protect and respect being truthful. When he's saying do not covenant, he's really positively saying learn how to be content. And in fact, in each of the commands, even the ones that are that come to us in a negative frame of mind, those certainly set before us what's forbidden, but they even open up to us an understanding of what's required. This is a loving father who loves his nation very well. And so he is giving them these instructions. Now, quickly, let me shift to the second part. The, what's the function? As we kind of look overall at the, these ten commandments, these ten words, what's the function? Well, already based upon some of the details that I've specced out, um, it, both from now the things I've said briefly this morning and the things that we alluded to last week, the, the law in its immediate context here, the law was to function uh, as the means for Israel to, before all the other nations, reveal the character of God and to recommend the ways of God to all of the other nations. And it would be through their obedience to this law, through their covenant faithfulness to the covenant that they are now a part of, it would be through their obedience, not that they would earn sonship, they've already, they've already acquired that, God has provided that for them, but it would be through their obedience and covenant faithfulness that they would show the whole world what a glorious God they have. That, that, they, that they are the people who have been kindly rescued by this God from their captivity, and they are now the people who this generous God has given them the instructions on what living the good life truly consists of. Now, that's in the immediate context, the immediate function of, of the law. But, but, but we will run into, we, we don't have to get very far, even here in the book of Exodus, but throughout the Old Testament, before we run into real troubles real soon. And, and, and what, will be, what we will see real quick is that there is an unfolding, uh, an unraveling uh, that shows additional functions of the law. The, the, the law begins to serve in an important functional role to show Israel that there is something terribly wrong with them. That they have a heart defect. 
Now, Israel, they've, they've spent years in Egyptian captivity. They've spent years living under a regime, an earthly regime of a wicked culture. We could even say that, that, that during that time of living under the regime of a wicked culture, they, they are coming out of a demon-filled world. And, and yet what, what is going to be demonstrated to Israel as the law is now placed in front of them is that the real uh, core of the problem of their life is not where they came from, is, 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 is not the wicked culture that they uh, were, have been rescued from, but the real problem is a moral heart failure. As it turns out, it's, of course, it's, it's not just a, a genetic um, heart condition found in ethnic Israel. Uh, as it turns out, all of humanity have this heart failure, and yet Israel is going to be front and center to display before all the world the fundamental heart problem of the human condition in terms of how the law of God shows that. Because it won't be long before Israel uh, uh, will show their disposition, a disposition that all of humanity has, and yet, and yet we study them because they have been recorded for us in the Old Testament of massive fail, uh, and, and, and they're, not, they're not unique in that, just that we have their history. We, we have the record of their uh, massive moral failure, uh, that they, they, had, they suffer from a disposition that has been rooted in the human heart ever since Adam and Eve. As Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, so now all of mankind now think wrongly. All of mankind now think that a life of freedom and a life of a glorious future resides in doing as I please. In other words, what's going on in the human heart, and the law will reveal this, what's going on in the human heart in Israel as well as what goes on in the, in the human heart in any of us today, is that the human heart does not want anybody telling us what to do. And that goes, yes, for you too, God. But out of my life, I want freedom. I want my own destiny and future. I don't want your restrictions and controls. The law begins to reveal that's really what's percolating in the human condition. So we see an added feature as to the function of the law. The law reveals our sin. The law reveals our sinfulness. I like the way that Paul wrote it in Romans 7, 7 and 8, he says, For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And then he writes in verse 8, in, verse, in chapter 7 of Romans, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the command, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Let me explain what I think Paul is trying to say there as it, as it pertains to a function of the law. Um, the law is not sinful. In fact, Paul would say in Romans 7, the law is holy and righteous and, and good. The, the, and the law is not the cause of our sinfulness. Uh, but the law is used to, to, to reveal and to, if you would, draw out our sinfulness. 
I mean, think of it this way. Boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. There is nothing that motivates or even incites the sinful heart to sin uh, than hearing God say, don't. Just like when your toddler was told not to do something. I mean, just like, like wow, I hadn't thought about that. Good, uh, you know, I'll try it. I mean, we didn't have to take them to school to figure, figure, figure that out. In other words, the disposition of a fallen heart is already within us, but nothing shows the fallen heart for what it is quicker than to be confronted by what God tells us to do in His law and in, in His Word. And the problem with that is now it's on the basis of failure to achieve and to live out the law uh, that you and I are now placed under the condemnation or the curse of the law. And Romans 3.19 tells us now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. It is on the basis of the law that is the objective basis of our curse and our condemnation. The law is functioning to do that, and yet the law functions to do that um, the way that a surgeon might cut you to do a surgery so that, so that healing may come. The law functions to cut our hearts and to reveal our sinfulness so that the law would function to drive us, to point us to Jesus. Galatians 3.10 tells us, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and, and, and does them. Uh, and, and he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you see what Paul is telling us? You and I are cursed and condemned because we've not lived up to the law of God. The law of God has objectively revealed our heart condition. And the law incites that condemnation to drive us to Jesus, to show us our need for Jesus, who in his sacrifice substituted himself for us. He took our curse and he bore up under that curse for us in our place for our salvation. So, and so that even now, this morning, all who look to Jesus, all who trust in him and follow him are pardoned. The curse is removed. The condemnation has been lifted. And yet... What Jesus does in relationship to the law, he, he does more than pardon us. So I don't want to minimize that. He does pardon us. But, but he also empowers us with his very divine life to now become truly, earnestly, internally, and externally lawful people. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now in Christ, we, His pardoned people, now we experience new life in the Spirit. And such a life in the Spirit is a lawful life. It is a life that seeks to honor Christ and to imitate Christ. And yet, to imitate Christ is to do what? To live in accordance with the law of God. He, he, he nailed it. He got it perfect. He was righteous in every aspect of the, of the law. And now he is indwelt us and is living out his life in and through us. So on the one hand, at this present moment, our focus is not the law, but Christ and how he indwells us by his spirit through faith and how, how his indwelling presence in our lives is what makes a lawful life possible. And yet, on the other hand, to live a lawful life because of the life that Christ gives to us entails that we turn to the law to ascertain the wisdom found in the old covenant. So and that's what I mean. We, on the one hand, we are no longer under the covenant that was specified in these Ten Commandments. And yet, and yet these ten words are more than just cultural baggage of an ancient Israel people. These, these words reflect the eternal law of God that have always been the case. That is because they flow out of the very heart and nature and character of God. So, for instance, when Moses says here in Exodus 20, do not murder, there's nothing new about that. That's always been the case. Why? Because this is God's world. He, he has, he has there's, this, there's an essential component of human nature in which God places his moral code in our souls. And that is used to help inform the human conscience. And so all of humanity who are absolutely honest about the reality know that murder is wrong. And yet, and yet this has now been codified in these ten words which reflect the eternal will of God, the eternal plan of God. So there is now an enduring value for these ten words. As Christ indwells us by his spirit, he is producing in us a people who will be noted for being a lawful people. And among other things, what that means is a people who then look at these ten words because we want to be the people who, who honor the Lord. And we want to know what does it look like to live a life that honors the Lord. It, it, it looks like a life that wishes to honor God above all things and to love others well above all things. What does that look like? These ten words unpack in detail how to be a human, how to honor God, how to look and love and live like Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you teach us in every nook and cranny of your word. And yet we thank you this morning for these ten words. And as we now look more closely at them, Father, may we grow in how we desire and how we work out a life that honors you, that loves you well, that loves others well. Father, so be present with us. And Father, we pray for those who are here perhaps and do not know the redemption 
that is available through Jesus Christ. Father, may they not hear these ten words and think that their doing them is what will earn them merit. Father, may they run to Jesus. I pray this in Christ's name.